Well, did you hear it in the story? The angels didn't just announce the good news. They also announced some bad news. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't come out right at first as you, as you read the text, but it's there. It's, it's kind of underneath the surface. So here are the shepherds. They're out in their fields. They're watching their sheep. They're watching their flocks. The angel of the Lord appears to them. And the first thing that you uh, read there is that they were terrified. Now, that's a whole other sermon in its own, all right? So when you hear all these stories about people seeing angels and Jesus and all that sort of thing, and they just talk about it like, you, you know, they're just you know, going to Publix and buying butter, um, think again. There's something really incredibly uh, special and obviously terrifying about uh, seeing an angel. But they come, the angel comes and, and tells these shepherds that he has good news. That the Savior's been born, he's the Messiah, he's the Lord. And then, and, then the, uh, and then a small portion of the heavenly host comes and makes the pronouncement, which has bottled up in it both good and bad news. First, the Savior's been born, the Messiah has been born, the Lord has been born. And the second, he is going to bring peace on earth to those on whom the favor of God rests. Now, I hope you see that line and, and maybe, maybe go home and chew on that a little bit. He promises peace to those on whom the favor of God rests. And the bad news that is bottled up in, inside of that good news is this. There currently is no peace. In order for peace to be needed and desired and longed for, to, in order for the announcement of peace coming to those on whom God's favor rests, in order for that to be good news, there first has to be the reality and the realization that there is no peace, that, that peace is fleeting and, and, and yet longed for, desired even. Peace, as the angel announces it, is freedom from hostility, tranquility. When, when we think of peace, we almost always think of it in conjunction with conflict or or war um so you know what peace it, it, it it's it's a word we find it at christmas it's on lots of christmas cards it's a lofty goal we we think of it often but how how achievable really is that peace we like the sound of it we think it's a good idea. World leaders talk about peace in, in 2019. We've had the continuation of Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. You've had the United States talking with the Taliban in Afghanistan about peace, even holding talks. You've had peace talks in the Sudan, India, and Pakistan who have talked for a long time. I need to cough. <clears throat> have talked for a long time about peace in Kashmir, meeting and, and talking. There have been on-again, on-off-again 
peace talks between North and South Korea. So countries are talking about peace. People are talking about peace. What about peace in your life? What about peace between you and the creator of the universe? What does that peace look like? You know, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Romans that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I don't know, I don't know when you hear that, I don't know what that sounds like to you, but that sounds like a peace declaration to me, right? If there's no condemnation, then that means that status of that relationship has changed. Do you know that kind of peace where you could state unequivocally, I'm at peace with God? What about peace in your life, peace in your relationships? Would you say, are you able to say there's a complete lack of hostility in my life? There's none, nowhere. That neighbor's dog that barks at 5.30 in the morning. Some of you have that dog. I know you do. It's your dog that's barking at 5.30 in the morning. Let's just take the expanded idea of peace. Not that it's not just a lack of hostility, but the biblical idea of peace. All right? Because the biblical idea of peace is fuller. It's shalom. It's the idea that everything has been made right. It's whole. It's together. So I want us to spend a little time this morning talking about that idea of peace. Already kind of discussing the problem of peace, then the way of peace, and then finally, I want us to move into kind of some deeper theological waters and talk about the conundrum of peace. The problem of peace, the way of peace, and the conundrum of peace. The night of the birth of Jesus, the angels came and announced peace to the shepherds. Now, you probably, if you've been around church at all any length of time, you've probably heard the, the idea of uh, the shepherds discussed. First, why did the angels come and announce peace to these shepherds who are, you know, out watching their flocks at night? If there's anyone kind of in, in the Bible that you would think, okay, those guys, they probably, you know, with the exception of wild animals, all they dealt with were sheep. I mean, they had to, you know, they, it's not like they were um, involved at the high levels of, of government or something along those lines. Their job was shepherding sheep. And yet the angels came and gave them this message of peace and of hope and, and announcing the birth of the Savior of the world. And if you've, if you've heard that talked about, you know that, that, that the shepherds themselves 
were kind of at the bottom rung of the of the social ladder. And listen, uh, society in Israel at this point was was very much a, a, a social structure, and it was a wreck. If if you were at the bottom, you were at the bottom. You know, life was not necessarily very good for you. And so these shepherds are out there. And so it is fascinating that the angels come and announce this message of peace to them. They have very little social standing, no, no standing in society. And yet they get the message of peace. They seem to know no hostility. And yet they're the recipient of the message of peace. So in, what, in one sense, they exemplified um, the, the, the down and outer of the day. At another level, they receive a message that really was, you know, should have been given to people that really were craving peace, needing peace, looking for peace. The Herods of the day, right? Somebody who's wrecking lives, killing children, doing terrible things. I mean, if anyone needed peace, it was Herod's household, not necessarily the sheep, and yet they get the message. They receive the message first. And, and part of the reason that they received the message first is because they did embody the idea that Jesus was going to come, and at one level, he was going to come to people like that and give them the status that everyone longs for. He was going to come, and he was coming for little people. He was coming for the little guy. He was going to set their world right, if you will. And the reason that he was going to come to set their world right was because at their status, they felt at odds with the world around them. And that's the opposite feeling of peace, right? When things aren't right, when things are messed up, when things are difficult, when things are challenging. The opposite of peace in our minds is conflict and war. Listen to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, War creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. I'll read that again. War creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. What is the permanent human situation? It's not peace. It's the curse, right? It's, it's the animosity. It's, it's the, the wall of hostility that exists between God and man, between men and men between husbands and wives, between children and parents, between us and creation, right? There's a, there's a complete lack of shalom from the top to the bottom. And so C.S. Lewis says, look, when war comes along, when, when, that, when war rises up, all, all it is doing is it is aggravating the human condition that we're all involved in. And then he says, 
it does it in such a way that now we can't ignore it, right? It puts it on the front page of the paper of our lives. Now, you, you can just step that down, right? C.S. Lewis is, is thinking about life in a country that was embattled. But think about this in your life, right? When conflict arises, anywhere it happens, all it's doing is aggravating the condition that is below the surface. So when somebody comes, there's a, there's a great book on marriage that, uh, that one of the Tripp brothers wrote. And the title of the book is, What Did You Expect? All right? It's a, it's a really good book. And now you think, what in the world? And the reason it's so good is because it starts off by saying, look, when you take two sinners and you put them together, what did you expect? Harmony? Peace? And so they walk through what that looks like in life for us, okay? And so when conflict arises in life, you know, I, I frequently tell the elders, and, and, and down through the ages of my ministry, and when, when things happen, I usually say, what, what, did you, what do you expect? I mean, we are human, and the human condition is we're born in sin, right? And that's really hard news. Like, we don't want to talk about that news. That, that news is really challenging to us. It scares us. But that's real news. And and so Lewis says, look, human life has always been lived on the edge of the precipice. We live right there because the human condition is not peaceful. Which is why wars abound, which is why difficulties abound, which is why struggles abound in life. And it's been that way since Adam and Eve in the garden. Let me take you back. If you've got your Bibles, go all the way to the beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 3. And let's just, let's just take Lewis's premise, right? That we live life on this precipice, that kind of below the surface is this human condition. And if you look at Genesis chapter 3, you read about the fall of man. And after the fall of man, beginning in verse 14, is an announcement of the curse. So verse 14, the curse that's pronounced on Satan. Cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on the belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there's going to be, right? Enmity between uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then to the woman, he says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And and with pain, you will give birth to children. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, Traditionally, that's been understood that that the wife in, in a marriage is going to seek to run the marriage. And the husband is going to seek to squash that attempt, okay? And so there's going to be this struggle within the the marriage, and it's going to be back and forth, and usually it ends, uh, the husband is sort of heavy-handed, and the wife feels that 
verse 17, to Adam, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. And so the, the, the product of work, work itself is cursed. The ground is cursed. Verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat uh, and you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and for dust you will return. We'll die. So there's the curse, right? And, and, and a lot of that curse is that there's going to be problems between people. And there is enmity between us, and, and there's jockeying for position, and all of that's going on. And at the same time, we're working, and our work doesn't produce what we want it to produce. And we go to creation, and instead of getting this amazing fruit of the garden, now we get thorns, and we get thistles. And, and so the, the product is hard work. And, and in the end, after we've been eating and 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 at odds with each other, we die. That is the picture that Genesis 3 gives us. That's life, as Lewis said, on the precipice. And so in the curse, there's no peace with God. In the curse, there's no peace with men. And there's no peace with nations. When Paul describes, when he describes people apart from Jesus in Romans 3.17, he says this, The way of peace they have not known. The way of peace they have not known. Now think about it. That is the situation when the angel comes to the shepherds in the field and says, Peace. The Messiah is going to bring peace to you on whom his favor rests. That is really good news. Because the really bad news is so difficult and so challenging. You mean to tell me, There can be peace? You mean to tell me that first, I can be at peace with the creator of the universe? Unheard of. I mean, we're talking about a sacrificial system that many of these folks had lived under. Their families had lived under day after day after day after day offering bulls and goats and pigeons and lamb, on and on. The shedding of blood, there was no end in sight. All in an effort to feel as if there was peace. So what is the way of peace? How many of y'all seen Forrest Gump? Yeah. So you'll remember in the movie... Forrest Gump, Forrest is kind of living this life that is um, charmed, 
to some degree, but yet full of heartache. So his beginning, as you recall, was was not one. Uh, force is born. He, his legs are rickety. He wears braces. He he's a he's an outcast. He's he's just not. It's not all there together for him. And so he struggles as a as a young kid. And then as he goes through life, who does he meet? It, it, every person Forrest runs into has issues. Nobody in Forrest's life knows peace. None of them. And one of the characters that's most startling, this, this comes out in, in really clearly, is Lieutenant Dan. And you'll remember Forrest saves Lieutenant Dan's life in Vietnam, and so um, and, and he's incredibly bitter about it. Because he was supposed to die there. That was just, that was kind of, that was going to be his contribution to society. Um, and so he comes home and he is, he, he lives as a Vietnam vet, a most difficult life. And then there's this scene where they're on the shrimp boat, okay? And, and Forrest is working on the rigging. And Lieutenant Dan is in his wheelchair. He's a double amputee at this point, And he's sitting there and, and, he, and he's in his wheelchair. There's no peace in the sanctuary with that red wasp. And there's a scene where there, he's working on the rigging, and Lieutenant Dan is in his wheelchair, and he looks at Forrest, and he says, Forrest, you know, I never thanked you for saving my life. He doesn't say, thank you for saving my life. He says, I never thanked you for saving my life. And Forrest is kind of looking at him, and he hoists himself up on the edge of the ship. He throws his legs over the side, and he jumps in. And the last scene of Lieutenant Dan is Lieutenant Dan backstroking off into a glorious cloud, sun, right? The water is crystal calm. And Lieutenant Dan is backstroking out into the world. And the voiceover is Forrest. And what does he say? He says he never said it, but I've got to believe that Lieutenant Dan had made his peace with God. We don't know that. The movie never tells us that. And what we're obviously left with is that Lieutenant Dan drowns in the water that is beautifully peaceful and he made his peace with God. There are all sorts of ways of peace. You can go read them. Peace is an unclenched fist. Peace is long journey. Right? Peace is all sorts of things to all sorts of people. The Bible tells us that peace comes through the sacrifice that Christ makes for us. The truth of Christmas is this. You don't find peace by going up. You find peace because it came down.
And you won't know that peace. You won't know peace in the ex- exterior areas of life, the extremities of life, until you know it with God. You just won't. You won't know it in relationships. You won't know it in the workplace. You won't know it until you know it with God. Because that peace with God becomes the source of your ability to be at peace with the world around you. So until you experience the favor of God, you won't know the kind of lasting peace And we're going to talk about the conundrum of that piece in a minute, right? But just the beginning of it, the start of it, is to know and to be at peace with God. How does that happen? How do we we find that? Well, you don't go on a long journey. You don't just unclench your fists. You don't just try harder. The Bible tells us that you receive the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that his life is credited to your account. And on account of that credit to your account, God declares you right with him. And so he gives you the gift of his righteousness. And his righteousness becomes yours. And so you are declared righteous before God. I wish there was some other way to say that. I, I wish there were like some really easy, you know, to, to apprehend. I don't know. I, I, I struggle with trying to communicate that idea, but that's the Bible's idea, right? Jesus died on the cross. He turned away the wrath of God from you. And he set up a situation in which his work became yours. And when God looks at you, he sees the work of Christ. And so that's why you trust by faith the work of Jesus. And that means you put your hope in what Jesus did. And Jesus died on the cross. And he lived obediently to the law. And he did it all for you. And so that's what sets up the peace scenario that you can have with God. That's why God can, that's why Paul can say in Romans, there's now, not at the moment of death, not at the final judgment, there is now, today, no condemnation for those who are in who? Christ. There's no condemnation. He he will not condemn you. Right? So, You are free and clear with respect to your relationship to God. Now, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of what he came to do for us. And so as you trust in Jesus, that peace becomes yours. A president A recent president said this, The belief that peace is desirable is rarely enough to achieve it. Peace entails sacrifice. 
The belief that peace is desirable is rarely enough to achieve it, right? You can't gut it out, but there is a sacrifice that brings peace. He wasn't thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus when he said this. He was thinking about your own personal sacrifice. And and, and maybe if you want to think about it that way, your sacrifice is that you lay down all your trying. You give it up and you trust in the work of Christ. Let's talk about the conundrum. Because here's the conundrum. The conundrum is... You can know that peace with God, and there can still be war in your life today. That's the conundrum of the peace announced to the shepherds. So the angel comes and he announces peace to those on whom his favor rests, right? But that wasn't an announcement that it's all done, right? If, if, if his favor rests on you, you will experience blissful joy and peace for the rest of your lives. Show me. It's a conundrum because you hear that message, right? That peace has come and you hear me telling you there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that you can experience that peace, right? That's what I'm telling you. You can experience that peace with God. But the reality is, there's still war in your life. So I've got to give you the second part to the good news, right? Because some of you are scratching your heads. You're going, well, what's the big deal? If, if, right? What does that peace do for me if I still experience war? What does that peace do for me if I still have hurt? What does that peace do for me if there's still pain? And here's what I'll tell you. What I'll tell you is when the angel came and announced that peace, he was, he was announcing the first installment. He was announcing the first installment. That is, the first advent of Christ ushered in an era of peace that is not yet finalized. That's the reality. And so you and I sang a hymn a few minutes ago. I don't know what number it is. If you've got your hymnal, 195. Take the red book. Y'all aren't used to using it. We need to do more of that. But turn to 195, Joy to the World. I should probably let Amy do this part, but I'll, I'll try it. So your hymnal is divided into sections, okay? I don't know if you've ever known this, but, but just, just a little bit. So uh, when you get to 195, you're in the Advent section of the hymnal, right? So all of the songs in and around this area are going to be about the birth of Christ, His Advent, His coming, His birth. <laughs> if you turn a little bit further, just go to 252. Keep your finger there. 252, his death. Okay? 287, his resurrection. 
306, his priestly intercession. Do you see a progression? 319, his second coming and judgment. You want to know something? 195 could just as easily and probably should be at 319 as opposed to 195. Because Isaac Watts, who wrote Joy to the World, did not write an Advent hymn. He wrote a second coming hymn. Joy to the World is not, I'm sorry, some of you are going to be really mad at me, but it's not, strictly speaking, a Christmas hymn. It's beautiful. It's set to music that makes us want to think about Christmas. There's a couple of twists on some words that make us think we're thinking and singing about Christmas. Right? Let's, let's look at one. Here's the one that makes me think of the, uh, of the, um, of the shepherds in the field. Stanza 2, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. When I sing that, that line, I don't know why, but it makes me think shepherds. I, I, it's, a, it's a word trick or something. I don't know. But it's the third line, it's the third stanza that tells us Isaac Watts was writing a song about the second advent because he says, no more let sins and sorrows, what, grow, nor thorns infest the ground. No more. No more thorns. No more sin. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You know what Isaac is singing about? He's singing about the second coming of Christ. If you look at the first lines, right? The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. He rules the world, stands afore, with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness, the wonders of His love. See, Isaac Watts is writing about the second advent of Christ. When Christ returns in glory, he finishes, he seals the deal. When he comes the second time, so he's a, he has already in, uh, inaugurated his kingdom, right? He's begun in his birth, in his first advent. He got the ball rolling. He, he put the cake in the oven. I don't know, whatever metaphor works for you. And at his second coming, he's going to pull the cake out, or the ball's going to stop rolling, or he's going to seal the deal. We call that the consummation of all things, right? And so he started the job. He is at work doing the job. And, and this is where you've got to know. This is where you're, you and I and this, this body is so important because right now we're at work bringing peace to the world in which we live. That, that's our job. That's why we give. That's why we go. That's why we love. 
because we are we are the ones at work in the middle of this first and second advent. And at the second coming, Christ will close it all up and seal the deal. And there will be no more sins and there will be no more thorns. He will restore his creation and he will restore you and me and, and all who have trusted in Christ. And then there will truly be, what, peace on earth and joy to the world. That's the conundrum. The conundrum is he started the job in your life, but he hasn't yet finished it. In, in the here and now, you're, you're right with God, all right? That, that's complete. That work is complete. The, the work in your heart, the work in your life is, is an ongoing process. And that's why you don't yet know total peace. But that's your hope. That's, the, that's what you're striving for. That's what you're pushing for. That's what you seek to bring in and around you. Because you know it. You have it. You've experienced it. And, and so you want to make it like that everywhere you go. Right? Yeah. That's what we're called to do and be. And so... That's why we worship weekly. That's why we involve ourselves in the study of the Word. That's why we want to see the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. That, we want to see the fruit of the Spirit grow in our lives. We're not there yet. So we've got to be involved in the process. We've got to be involved in the church. We want to be involved in the life of the church. You're in a small group. You're in a Bible study. You're life on life with somebody in order to see the fruit of the Spirit grow so that you can push peace out into a really gloomy, dark world. And that's who we are. And that's why the first Advent is so precious and so important for us because the announcement was, listen, peace is now here. And you, you can experience it in a relationship with God through Christ. And oh, by the way, it's kind of a down payment for the final act. And that is the second advent. And so we use Christmas not only to look backwards. That's fun. That's enjoyable, right? You know, I think, I think like every nativity scene ought to have like a, a corollary. And the corollary is like, I don't know how to depict it, all right, but like, glorification maybe just some giant bright light i don't know but it it ought to have a corollary because we look back at christmas where what we really need to do is kind of glance back at the manger and look forward to the future to the second coming to the great hope let me pray for us (laughs) father we pause now just to give you thanks thanks for the work you've done, for all that you've begun. You tell us in your word that that which you have begun, you will carry on to completion in the day of Christ. Father, let us use Christmas. May this season propel us to
towards the final season, the final advent, the final coming of Christ for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We'll sing hymn 201, A Little Town of Bethlehem.